We are in the book of 2 Chronicles. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter 4 today. If you don't have a Bible, we have some that are available for you. Uh, you just didn't bring yours. They're available. You borrow and drop it back off. If you don't have one, we want you to have one. Uh, to take it. That's what it's there for. Um, let's go before the Lord. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for the Word of God. What I'm grateful for or just a, an anchor, something that I know is certain and true, and Lord, that I can come to allowing my heart to be opened up to receive what it is that you have for me. And so, Father, that's our prayer for our time here together. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would be moving here. Lord, that you you know the depths of our hearts. You know what our week has been like. You, you know what the following week is going to hold for us. And so we ask that you would use this time in your word Lord, uh, as a surgeon with his scalpel to just go down into the deepest places and to do your mighty work. Father, that you would teach us. Lord, it is uh, truly our desire that uh, we will have encountered you here this morning and undeniably heard your voice. So we ask for you to be faithful to your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Okay, uh, First Chronicles chapter, excuse me, Second Chronicles chapter four. Now, when we were in uh, chapter three, we saw there that Solomon began the building of the temple, the physical labor. Chapter two, he purposes in his heart. Chapter three, he gets down to it, he starts building, and in the process of building, we spent our time looking that there was essentially three rooms to the temple, quote unquote. Uh, two of the rooms inside the building, one of the rooms on the outside, sort of like a courtyard, and so. Uh, we were looking mostly at the building aspect of things. Now this week we're going to be uh, looking more so at the items that are going to fill the building, the furniture, if you will, the instruments that they're going to use. And so in addition to what we have seen already, in addition to the walls, we saw that there were these two large uh, angels at the, the back wall of the Holy of Holies, the 15-foot high cherubim. We saw that there was the Ark of the Covenant that would be placed there in the Holy of Holies. Uh, we learned about a thick veil that was going to separate the, the most holy place from the holy place. Uh, but that was essentially it. Uh, now as we move into chapter 4, we're going to learn about what is called the altar of bronze, or the bronze altar. We're going to learn about the molten sea uh, and the, the 12 oxen that held that up. We're going to learn about 10 basins for the priest to wash the temple utensils. We'll learn about 10 golden lampstands. We'll learn about 10 tables for the showbread and then an additional 100 golden uh, bowls, if you will, that sit on these tables. Uh, and then we'll learn all about the pots and the shovels and the basins, etc. that this fellow by the name of Hiram from Tyre built. So today our focus will be from the building structure to the items that would be inside of the building. All right, so let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, now he, that, that would refer to Solomon, and it doesn't necessarily mean that he built it, but he was the one build that, telling people to build it. He said, he made an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, and 5 cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under it were figures of gourds for 10 cubits, encompassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing the north, three facing the west, three facing the south, and three facing the east. The sea was on them, and all their rear parts were inward. 
its thickness with a hand breadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 3,000 baths. He also made 10 basins, basins, I should say, in which to wash. And he said five on the south side, five on the north side. In the, these, they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, and the sea itself was for the priest to wash in. So the first item we come across is the altar that is made of bronze. Now, this altar is not actually in the temple itself. It actually stands in the outer courtyard. And as we look at verse 1, we're given its dimensions. Notice verse 1 there. He made an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 10 cubits high. Now, if you forgot, a cubit is about 18 inches long, tip of the top finger down to the elbow of the average man. So it's about 18 inches in length. So in reality, when it says it's 20 by 20 cubits, we're looking at about 30 by 30. All right? So you get the idea. We have a picture, I think, coming up here. This is roughly what the temple would have looked like. And so you have the real tall kind of opening there. Uh, and the, the two pillars, we said the pillars yesterday were Boaz and, and Jachin or Jachin. You can see the arrow is pointing to this rectangle structure. It's actually a square structure. That's the bronze altar. It would have been right before the door that the priest would enter into to go into the temple. Uh, and then on the side over here, this is sort of like a, a drawing of what it might look like a little more. It's pretty tall. Uh, we're talking about seven and a half feet high. Um, it's pretty high up there and so on in the dimensions. And here, the purpose of the altar was for a complete and total burnt offering. That which you brought, you put on there, and it was completely consumed in the fire. Uh, and as we said earlier, this was for man to come to the place of worship and to acknowledge his total depravity. His self, his person, his righteous deeds, all these things had to be completely consumed in the act of worship to God. The idea, I have nothing that I can bring to God except what you declare, Lord. And so that's the altar, uh, the bronze altar. Now beside the bronze altar, there was what the, my version, ESV, calls the Sea of Cast Metal, or some of your versions will call the Molten Sea. And many times in the scripture, and the reason why I, I pointed out Molten Sea is because many times in the scripture it's just called the Sea. And so be aware of it. You can see a photo of this one here. That's the Molten Sea. So it's to the right of, uh, or to the north of, uh, the bronze altar, but not in front of the door necessarily. It's off to the side a little bit here. Uh, you can see a little bit more closely to the right up there that it's this large bowl that sits on the back of these uh, bulls of sorts there. And uh, we'll talk about this one here. Now, there's basically three things that you can do with metal, bronze in particular. Remember, everything on the outside of the temple was made of bronze. I told you like 10 weeks ago. I'm surprised you didn't remember. Everything on the inside of the temple was either made of or covered uh, with gold. And so here, on this outside, you have this bronze sea. Uh, and there's, as I said, there's basically three things you can do with the metal. You can beat it into shape and kind of use a hammer and heat it up a little bit and design it and make it look like something uh, of sorts. You can certainly do that. A second thing is to take it and almost have it as a flat sheet of sorts and, and uh, engrave on it or carve on it or from behind carve on it so that it protrudes out. Um, we see an example of that in 2 Chronicles 3, where it speaks of the nave, sort of this vestibule that they lined with cypress wood and then covered it with fine gold and then made palms and chains on it. They engraved palms and chains either into it or on it, meaning from behind so that it protrudes out. And the third thing that you can do with gold is to make a mold of an object 
and then pour gold over that so that it kind of takes the shape of the mold. And that's what molten is. That's what we're referring to here when we say the molten sea. So they made a mold of this large bowl structure, these bowls, poured the, the gold into that, eventually took the mold out, and you have the form now of this large bowl. Now, as I said, the molten sea is, it's like a large bowl. Look at verse 4. It says it stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was on them, and their rear parts were inward. It tells us in verse 2 that the molten sea stood five cubits high. A cubit 18 inches, so seven and a half feet high. Which is actually a little bit smaller. Can you go back to that picture, please, if you would? It's actually a little bit smaller, there you go, than this one here. However, if you look at the picture, it looks tall because it sits on the back of these 12 oxen. Again, look at verse 4. The circumference of this bowl, just to give you a feeling for how big it is, is 45 feet circle. So we're talking a large bowl over there. It doesn't record for us how large the oxen were. We know the bowl was seven and a half feet tall, but if the oxen were roughly the same size, then this thing stood 15, 20 feet up in the air. Very, very large. Uh, and certainly, um, don't, like, you, you know it when you see it. You know, you're coming up on it, like, wow, this thing is huge. It's enormous, and it, and it hovers over us. Now, we don't know much about the molten sea in the scripture. What we do find is found twice in 1 Kings, twice here in 2 Chronicles, and once uh, it is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, um, specifically as it relates to these 12 bronze oxen. So in Jeremiah chapter 52, it says, Now the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces. Remember, Jeremiah is written when the Babylonians are coming in to conquer the nation of Israel, specifically Jerusalem. Here in the passage, it mentions the Chaldeans. That's another term to describe the Babylonians. So it says that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, they broke them in pieces, and they carried all the bronze off to Babylon. As for the two pillars, we learned about them, the one sea, that's the bowl, the 12 bronze bulls that were under the sea and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze was beyond weight. So it's a reference in Jeremiah chapter 52. Other than that, we don't have a ton of references to it. So why? The, there's no instructions that they had to build a bronze sea or molten sea or anything like this, but why is it there? Well, remember a couple things. One, the temple that Solomon is building is patterned after the tabernacle that Moses had built. It's patterned after, it specifically says that. It's not exactly the same. There are significant differences, usually in size. So if this was to be three feet, this was gonna be 10 feet, something like that. Uh, but they're not exactly the same. Moses never constructed a molten sea like the picture that you just saw. What he did construct was a bronze laver or a bronze basin. And so in Exodus chapter 30, it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Shall also make a basin of bronze with a stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, just like the one we see, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and the feet. Now we don't have the dimensions of that bronze basin, but we know that the tabernacle was portable, and so this thing's not going to be 45 feet in circumference. It's not going to be 20 feet high. It's going to be small enough that it can be moved around. You also get an example here of Solomon's penchant for extravagance. 
you know, most of us, we want to get a pet monkey or whatever. Solomon would get a zoo that he would uh, put on his property there. Uh, passage tells us here, uh, build me one candelabra. That's what Moses was instructed, instructed. One menorah. Solomon builds ten menorahs for the temple. He's told, so, uh, Moses was told, build me a small bowl. Solomon literally built a 15-foot-high swimming pool that he put there. And so Solomon has this penchant for extravagance uh, that it seems initially he used for good. He wanted to honor the Lord. Unfortunately, you, as you continue to watch the life of Solomon as we move through the book of Second Chronicles and you read some of the letters that, or, or the uh, books in the Bible that Solomon would have written, you see that that penchant for extravagance got himself into trouble. But anyway, Solomon patterns this sea after Moses' bronze basin. Now, he puts it on top of these oxen. It doesn't say why. There's no mention of these oxen. But the closest clue that we have, and, and I think there's a reason for everything that we're finding here in the temple. It's either coming directly from God or, or Solomon is sort of interpreting what it was that Solomon was doing. So everything has a reason. And the clue perhaps is provided for us in Numbers chapter 7. Now remember, Numbers is, I guess, uh, 1600 or 600 years before Solomon even lived. This is during the time of Moses. This is during the time of coming out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness. This is during the time of the pillar of fire uh, by night and the cloud by day, where God is leading the children of Israel from slavery to the promised land. These are the books that come before Joshua, who would enter in to the promised land. And this is the time where they're establishing this whole idea of a tabernacle. And it tells us in Numbers chapter 7, on the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, and he had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings, and he had anointed and consecrated the altar with all of its utensils, that the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, they approached and they brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs, and for each one an ox. And then you see in the passage in Chronicles that you have groups of three, oxen, three that are facing north, three that are facing south, three that are facing east, and three that are facing west. In the tabernacle, when the children of Israel would set up shop to stay for the night or for the week, the tabernacle would be set up in the middle, three of the tribes would be on the north, three of the tribes would be on the south, three on the east, three on the west there. And it, it perhaps, it seems that Solomon here is attempting to sort of recreate the scene of each of the tribes with bringing their bull or whatever, their oxen, to bring the offering upon these carts. And so it seems that that's what he is trying to do. What we do know is why. Why have a sea? Whether it be a small bowl, the basin that Moses built, or this sea here that uh, Solomon is building, is we learn that this was for the washing of the priest. Remember, the priests are doing these sacrifices. There's all sorts of blood that is going on there. And so there would be a ritual washing to cleanse themselves, but then a very practical washing to clean themselves as well. Look at verse 5 for a second of 2 Chronicles 4, where it speaks of the fact that the structure could hold 3,000 baths. Now, first look at that. We know what a bath is in our home. You know, go fill up the bath or whatever. And so 3,000 bathrooms <laughs> is what they must be referring to. A bath was a system of measurement in that day that we don't necessarily use here. And one bath was equivalent <laughs> to about eight gallons of water. Uh, so 3,000 of them times the eight, that's about 24,000 gallons 
of water. That's about the average size swimming pool in our backyards, about 24,000 gallons of water. So this bowl here, this big, big bowl that we have here is really like a sea, if you want to think of it that way, 24,000 gallons of water. These guys could not only take a bath there, but honestly the priests could have a swim party uh, in there if they want to, they could all sit there. That was for the priest to wash. If you look at verse 6, it speaks of ten basins. And notice it goes on, it says, in which to wash, and set five in the south and five in the north. In these basins they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, and the sea was for the priest to wash in. So the sea is for the, the human beings, the priest. These smaller bowls are used for the uh, instruments of sacrifice. So whether it be a knife, uh, that would be used to slay one of the animals, whether it be sort of a fork, they called it, not a small fork. Think of it, the best way I think to get a picture in our mind, you know how old fireplaces, you have like by the side of the fireplace, those little tools that you use to stoke the fire and all that. Think of it like that. Um, so you got these bronze or gold covered, fire, what are they called? Fireplace things. Fire poker things. And shovels and uh, fork kind of things and all that sort of stuff. So. Stuff up. All right, but anyway, that's the general idea that you have there. Uh, so the ten basins were used for washing those things that were used in the sacrifice. All right. So now we move on. Let's go on to verse seven. We've already looked at here this idea of the bronze altar. We looked at the molten sea that sat upon the twelve oxen. We look at these ten basins that were used to wash uh, the instruments of worship. Now verse seven. It says, and he made ten golden lampstands as prescribed, and he set them in the temple. Now, remember, Moses was instructed to build one lampstand, but that was prescribed according to a specific way. There's supposed to be one stem that comes up with sort of three branches on each side. So Solomon is not following the part about building one, but he is following the part about what they're supposed to look like. All right, so continuing it says, and he set them in the temple, five on the south, five on the north. He also made 10 tables, and he placed them in the temple, five on the south, five on the north. And he made a hundred basins of gold. He made the court of the priest, and the great court, and doors for the court. And he overlaid those doors with bronze. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. So, as we said, Moses was instructed to build one lampstand in Exodus 25. Solomon now, in 2 Chronicles 4, builds seven. And we have a photo, and we believe that you can see, get an idea of what these lampstands uh, do we have the, I give it, we don't, okay, mm -hmm. anyway, we have this, this particular photo here, uh, sorry, that's the photo, look at that, that's the general idea, now can we move on, you guys can take the photo, no more, alright, go ahead, one more, there you go, this one, there you go, okay, so this would be something you and I would never see, this is generally what it looks like inside of the temple, I remember when we went up to the temple mount, uh, on a recent trip there, today the temple doesn't stand on the Temple Mount, which I guess is ironic, uh, but roughly where the temple would have stood is you have this holy mosque uh, to the Muslim people there. And us, and nobody really goes in there, it's not a practicing mosque, uh, but certainly uh, those that are on the Calvary Chapel trip aren't going to be invited to come into this mosque. Uh, we're not Muslims, and, and so we have no part of it. But every now and again, the door would open. You know, and you're kind of like looking through to see because, hey, that's the closest I'm ever going to get. And you're trying to peek in on what's going on in there. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. You and I are going in this temple. But hopefully the door would open and we can kind of peek in and get a look at what's going on there. As we said, that, and as you can see, the, the walls of the first room. What's the first room you enter into called? 
holy place. The holy place, very good. The first room you enter into is the holy place. The rooms of the holy place are lined with five tables on one side, five tables on the other, and standing behind those tables are these, each one of them has one of these candelabras or menorah type candles that are standing there. The purpose of the lamps is to provide light to this room. The only light that's in the building at all is the Shekinah glory of God that is behind the three bone book thick veil in the most holy place. But here now in the holy place, these candelabras are providing light uh, in there. Standing in front of them, as we said, are 10 tables. Verse eight tells us that and then upon those tables, again in verse 8, it says he made a hundred basins of gold. I suspect, it doesn't tell us that I'm aware of, but I suspect he put ten of these little bowls on each table. Um, anyway, you move again, uh, look down to verse 9 and 10. Now we're going to move outside of the building itself proper, even though all of this would be considered a temple. We're outside of the building itself. And there in verses 9 and 10, it says that he designed uh, an area to include a court for the priest and then a greater court for the non-priest. Uh, you can read that there. He made the court of the priest and the great court and doors for the court, and he overlaid their doors with bronze. So that is certainly an addition, these courts, uh, to Moses' tabernacle in the wilderness. We know in the New Testament, when Herod... Uh, redesigned the temple. Herod was the one that basically flattened out the temple mount. When I say Herod, I mean as king, he commissioned it. Uh, flattened out the temple mount, gave it a lot more room so lots and lots of pilgrims could come and, and gather up there. We know that in the New Testament that the temple that existed at that time was uh, included three courts. So there was sort of the court of the priest, um, which would be equivalent here to what's called the court of the priest, then the greater court, and then there was the court of the Gentiles that spilled out even further, I guess, to accommodate the many, many visitors that were coming. Anyway, let's move on to verse 11. It said, Now Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of God. Now remember, Hiram was sent from the, by the king of Tyre because he was an expert. Uh, in these things. So he was sent down to do work. That's his name that's mentioned here. He finishes the work of King, of King Solomon in the house of God. The two pillars, the bowls, the capitals on the top of the pillars, the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the top of the pillars. Uh, Hiram completed the 400 pomegranates, uh, which is like a fruit that they um, engraved in or carved in, for the two lattice works. Two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. He made the stands also, and the basins on the stands, and the one sea, the molten sea, and the twelve oxen underneath it. Hiram made the pots, the shovels, the forks, and all the equipment for these. Hurumabi, now remember Hurumabi is another name for Hiram, we're talking about the same fellow. Uh, he made a burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zeradah. Solomon made all these things in great quantities, for the weight of bronze was not salt. So you may recall in chapter 2, when Solomon wrote a letter to the king of Tyre, he said uh, in verse 13, We need a fellow, a skilled man who has understanding, who's trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, uh, and all this. And you may recall that we kind of joked and we said, that Solomon's letter essentially said, I need a guy that can do everything perfectly. He got one of those. <laughs> and that Hiram, Hiram, the king of Tyre, responded, as a matter of fact, we do. 
and he sent down this engraver, this fellow by the name also of Hiram. Look at verse 19. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of God, the, guard, the golden altar, a.k.a. Um, for me, the altar of incense, the tables for the bread of the presence, the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold to burn before the inner sanctuary as prescribed, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of purest gold, the snuffers, the basins, the dishes for incense, the fire pans of pure gold, the sockets of the temple for the inner doors, kind of like a, um, like a hinge, for the inner doors of the most holy place and for the doors of the nave of the temple, they were all of gold. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, and he stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels and the treasuries of the house of God. So we come to the end of the building of the temple of God. And I love the process of things, because David had conceived it 20 years earlier, 25 years earlier, who knows the exact number, we don't know. But he conceived it a long time earlier. It wasn't meant for him to build it. Solomon now comes on the scene, continues the vision, that, if you will, that God put in the heart of David. He is the one who is determined to build it and to begin the process. And now, by the grace of God, it is finished. And I just appreciate, just in the way in which every part is doing its part for the work of God to go forward. And in some cases, you know, who knows what God has planned for the Mercer County, Bucks County community? And who knows what role Calvary Chapel, Mercer County is going to play on it? But what I appreciate is I believe that God has a purpose. God wants to do a work within our community. And that work may be 100 years from now if the Lord doesn't return. And Calvary Chapel, Mercer County may not even exist at that point in time. But are we being used at this time in the preparation for those that will be doing that work in 100 years? And does it really matter? Because many of us say, yeah, it matters. Yeah, I want to be a part of it. I want my name on it. I want Kevin Chapel's name on it. I want to be the youth guy that did such and such. Or is it for the glory of God that the work would get done? And certainly I hope that is the, the heart of each of us here, that God would be glorified. So the, by the grace of God, the building is finished. Now, next week when we come together, we're not done. Don't go back enough. But next week when we come together, we're going to see the prayer of dedication for this particular temple. Uh, and then sort of God saying, I've heard your prayer and I've come, and now I'm going to dwell in that particular place. But before we conclude this morning, I want to draw your attention to the book of Hebrews. So would you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is toward the back of your Bible. Our youth uh, group, I'm not sure if both groups or just the junior high, have just started studying the book of Hebrews. So they are in for a great treat every Friday night. Um, Hebrews is an amazing, wonderful book. Can't teach it every week here, though, on a Sunday morning because... Uh, there's other good books too, uh, 65 of them. But I uh, love the book of Hebrews, taught it a number of times to the 20-somethings when I was working with them. But the book of Hebrews, you, we're going to end up, you guys are going to end up in chapter 8. So if you want to flip to that, you can. But let me give you some background leading up to those eight chapters. Okay? Hebrews was a book that was written to Jewish Christians knowing that in addition to Jewish Christians, that the well-educated Greeks were going to, of the culture were going to read the book as well. So you can see in the mind of the author, some think, people think it was the Apostle Paul, uh, whoever it was, you can see in the mind of the author that these folks are there, and that he's including them, he, he's using lingo and language and arguments that they're going to look at and they're going to say, that makes a lot of sense. So it's a letter that was uh, written to these Jewish Christians in the educated Greek culture of the day. 
Its purpose, particularly in the first seven or eight chapters of the book, without a doubt, is to prove or to show the supremacy of Christ in every area to everything. And so as you read it, if you were to read it with that sort of uh, sifter in mind, like, all right, so how is this showing the supremacy of Christ? Those things are going to jump off the page at you because every chapter is dealing with it. So in chapter 1, for instance, Jesus is portrayed, or the argument is made by the author, that he is supreme to everything that was ever created. So look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 3. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Holds the universe together by the power of his word. That is supreme to everything that has ever been created. A little bit later in chapter 1 and verse 13, the argument is made that Jesus is supreme to the angels. So it says, to which of the angels has the Father ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the arguments continue to go on, that Jesus is superior to any of the angels that have ever uh, existed or created and so on. Chapter 3, verse 3, as you move on, speaks of the argument, all right, well, maybe then, not the angels, but what about Moses? Moses is certainly pretty important to the Hebrew uh, religion. And here it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Chapter 4, verse 14. That Jesus is greater than any high priest. Aaron or any other high priest that has ever lived. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession." For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He is our great high priest. You continue to move through chapter 5 and 6, eventually coming to chapter 8, where the argument is made that the whole Old Testament covenant, we call it the Old Testament, but this idea of uh, the way in which God was working in the Old Testament prior to the physical coming of Christ, the passage is clear, the sacrifice of animals and all this stuff. It says in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus is supreme to those sacrifices. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, he even makes the point. He says, now this is the point of what we've been saying. I appreciate that, because sometimes you start reading and you lose track. What were we even doing? I don't know what we were reading about here. But he says, now this is the point. So I read that, and I kind of shake back. I'm like, good, good. I, I drifted a little. It says, now the point of what we were saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a true minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Notice there, the true tent. Remember, another name for the tent was the tabernacle. So the writer of Hebrews, I'm making the comparison to the temple. The writer of Hebrews is leapfrogging the temple, and he's going back to the original thing, He's going back to the tabernacle, or the tent here. And there he is comparing Jesus as the great high priest to the high priest that went in and performed all those rituals in the tabernacle. He's making a comparison to them. Notice he says here that we have a true minister in the holy places. So just like the priest, the high priest would go into the holy place of the tabernacle, and then through the curtain to the most holy place, we have a high priest that will go into the holy place and go into the most holy place as well. 
But our particular high priest, as he's saying there, is the true high priest. The idea being, not that those guys were frauds or liars or something like that, but the idea simply being is they can only go so far. They can only kind of get on the surface of what God was trying to do. We have the high priest that could take it all the way and kind of seal the deal. Look at verse 3. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Skip to verse 5 for a second, just for time. It says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So we said earlier that Solomon patterned the temple after Moses' tabernacle. Moses patterned the tabernacle after the heavenly temple, so to speak. After the picture that God had showed him. Not of a literal building that exists there, but these ideas and these concepts. So, again, all these things are a pattern of the work of our high priest Jesus. Now, notice what it says again in verse 1. Because the point of what we're saying is this. We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So picture what a high priest would do. Once a year, all throughout the year, sacrifices. But once a year, they would take the sacrifice, the high priest would, and he would go behind the veil, and he would offer that day of atonement sacrifice. And then he would come out, and he would wash, and he would do his things, whatever it may be, and he would go away sort of in this somber mood. But then they would come back the next day and offer the sacrifice. The next day, offer the sacrifice. Eventually, come back a year later, go behind the veil again for the day of atonement, right? There's always a labor. There was always a work for these priests, because as it says in another place, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. But notice what it said about Jesus as the great high priest. So here is Jesus, so to speak, in the heavenly tabernacle, doing his work before God, if you will, bringing the sacrifice before the Father. And he goes in and offers it. And when he comes out, what does he do? He sits down. If you look at the temple, you look at the tabernacle, there are no seats. There were tables. There were candelabras. There were curtains. There was arcs. Uh, there were bowls and basins. There were knives and forks, but there were no chairs. Because the work of a priest in the Old Testament law, the Old Testament covenant, was never completed. It was something that was always looking forward in faith to the work that Jesus did. And when he did his work, he was done, he sat down by the right hand of his Father. There's great significance in that those four words in your Bible. One who is seated. If I were you, I don't know what you do with your Bible, but I would circle it, I would highlight it, I would do something because there's great significance there. It's been said that the greatest commentary of the Old Testament is... The New Testament. Apparently you haven't heard it, that it's been said. Uh, it's been said that, though, that the greatest... So if you want to understand your Old Testament, read your New Testament. If you want to understand things in the New Testament, sort of like, what's that picture of? Read your Old Testament. It can all explain itself. There are places... I, I read commentaries and things like that. There are places for study tools. But I, I think we could get by just with our Bibles. You know, so suddenly, all of a sudden, all our books were gone and we didn't have books or something that we could rely on. We could get through with our Scripture. They did it in the past you know, 1,800 years. We could do it as well. It serves as a commentary. I look at commentaries many times as just sort of like, a, here, go down that trail kind of thing. And it kind of directs me, you know, you might want to check out Leviticus 10. And then I'm on my own. And I go and I do that and I do my study. That's why I like to bring us back to all these different places uh, as often as possible. You may not like it. You're like, man, that's why we're in First Chronicles for, you know, six months. You keep going all over the place. But I think it's important. What, what else are you going to do? 
Right, we'll take our time and we'll have a good time. Anyway, uh, greatest commentary of the Old Testament is the New Testament. Look up to Hebrews chapter 9, please. And we're going to read extensively here. Bear with me, okay? It says, with, by the way, with the picture of what we were looking at in 2 Chronicles earlier, chapter 4. Keep that in the back of your mind as we read these words. Now, even the first covenant had regula regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared for the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Look to verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but only into the second, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing. And so remember, what separated the first section from the second section? It was the veil, remember? That veil there that kind of formed the two rooms of the holy place and the, the holy of holies. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, as long as that veil stood, that sent a message that we haven't yet been there, we haven't arrived. The Holy Spirit indicates that it's not yet open. Continuing in, in uh, verses 6 through 10, it says, Now according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Skipping on down to verse 11. But when Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So in my version it reads again, uh, probably verse 6, it says, through the greater and more perfect tent. That word tent can be translated curtain. So Christ passed through the greater and more perfect curtain, remember, into the holy place. He's the high priest, the holiest, the holiest, I should say. Continuing the, the verse, it says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of bulls and goats and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living in God. A living God, I should say. So, did, did the work of the priest in bringing the bulls, slaying them, offering the blood and these various things, did it have any purpose? Absolutely. Did it work on purifying the heart of the worshiper, the conscience of the worshiper? Yes, they could leave clean, but not because of the, bull, the blood of the bulls and goats, but because in faith, God said, do it this way for now. <clears throat> All looking forward, though, to Jesus when he would enter in. Continuing in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator, Jesus, of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal to be inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where our will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will, a contract. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And you can hear the words when Jesus is sitting at that what we call the Last Supper with his disciples, as he was, would lift up the cup, he would say, this is the blood of the new covenant. The idea, the transition here. In the same way, it says Jesus sprinkled, the, the, Moses did, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. So for the earthly tabernacle, it'll do. The blood of bulls and goats. But as far as that once and for all offering in the heavenly tabernacle that Christ came, you need a better sacrifice than bulls and goats. Continuing, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God, great words, on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me, let me read those words again. Verse 26. As it is, Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You've been around the church a lot. You've heard those words before. You get, yeah, yeah, I get the idea. I know what you're saying. But, but meditate on it. Think about it. Once and for all to put away sin. When Jesus was on the cross, as he was closing out, I think I said this recently, he cried out, it is finished. Paid in full is how that can be translated. It's a term that is used in finances when a debt has been completely paid off. They would stamp on that debt, paid in full, on that uh, invoice or whatever it may be. And that's what Jesus was declaring. Man had a debt to God. Jesus came. And once and for all, he paid the debt. It is finished. Well, the tabernacle was built upon the pattern given to Moses of heavenly things. All of the items, and, and I wish I had more ability, I wish I had more time, or whatever it may be, to dig into every single thing that is found in the tabernacle or the temple. Why the pomegranates? You know, why this particular carving? Why the fruit here? Uh, why this number of uh, basins and so on? I'm sure there's a meaning for everything that is there, and I'd encourage you to dig in. But it's all a foreshadowing. All the items, all the rituals, they look forward to Jesus and the work of Jesus as our high priest. The sin that separated man from God since the decision in the garden was once and for all dealt with in the person and the work of Christ. Would you just look over to Hebrews 
There it says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is great truth in verse 14. And I think there are two implications for us here this morning. Some of us come here this morning, and we come, we're still in the place, so to speak, of the Old Testament, you might say. That we're continually coming and we're continually bringing our offerings. There's a continual recognition of our sin. There's a continual state of our heart and mind that knows that we're separated from God. And so we come with a repeated sacrifice, hoping that God will be appeased. So maybe we come and I'm going to be good. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm committing myself to church, whatever. I re remember, I gave my life to Christ in about October of 1988. Uh, I'd been going to church for a little while now with, uh, with my wife, actually, uh, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, I was just tagging along, quite honestly. But somewhere in, in the month of October, and I don't have a specific time, but somewhere it clicked, and I understood, and I began to know. But for that first eight months or so of my walk with Christ, the nature of my relationship was, i got to clean up things. I got to work really hard. I got to commit myself, motivate myself, stop this action, start you know, start doing these things or whatever. I had not come to the place where I just simply rested in the finished work of Christ. I came with my own works still. I do. I believe I was saved, but I, I kept coming with my own works to add to the grace of God as much as possible here. And it was in the summertime, probably in about June of uh, 1989 that I was at this youth conference thing, and, and the speaker shared some things. And, and as the speaker shared, it all became clear to me, you need to just stop trying. You need to stop trying to please God. You need to stop trying to add to the work of God. You just need to accept what he has done in your life. And here's the fascinating thing. When I finally did that, God began to clean my life up, of, clean my life up of all those other things, those things I've been trying so hard for 10 months to get out of my life. Once I finally rested in the grace of God, those things just began to kind of fade away out of my life. I didn't want them anymore. Because I think, because I saw him for his glory. Who wants this? And what am I going to do with that? What am I going to do this? And so I'm going to go with this. And so some of us here, I think we are still kind of dealing with God in an Old Testament sense. That is, we're trying to please him. God, I want to give you this and give you that and do this. And hopefully, Lord, at the end of the day, you'll smile on me. I really hope so. I'm trying. God, I'm doing my best. And God says, it works for God. So that's one implication. Some of us are in that particular place here. And for those, this verse from verse 14 of chapter uh, 10, you can know that the price has been paid once and for all. God dealt with the penalty of your sin. God is dealing with sanctifying you. He's dealing with the problem of your sin that it keeps reincurring. Great truth for those that find themselves in that place this morning. Others of us, we come here this morning, and we know about the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. We're not trying to add to the grace of God here. We've applied the atoning blood to our lives, and God is cleansing us. If that describes you, then let me just finish these words. Chapter 10, verses 19 and 23. Jesus says this to those people. Therefore, brothers, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the tail torn veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean 
from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. You know, I had the great privilege this last week or so of talking to a young person who committed some sin, knew that it was sin, and confessed it as such, but admitted to me that he continued to kind of feel like he needed to beat himself up over that sin. And it was such a great privilege to be able to speak into that person's life and say, you know what? You're clean. You've been washed. The debt has been paid. The blood of Christ has sprinkled us clean from an evil conscience. You can walk in the grace of God. It was like that. Like, yeah! Like that to him. thought I was weird. But it was just so exciting. And I remember that day, I remember that time of my life where the wrestling and the fighting stopped and receiving the grace of God took over. These verses remind us, full assurance of faith. You see that there? An evil conscience sprinkled clean. A confession of hope. Great encouragement from the book of Hebrews, somehow connected to 2 Chronicles chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for this truth. Lord, how freeing it is Lord, to just unload all of these things off of our heart. Lord, we think of the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian finally did that. He came to the foot of the cross and he just unloaded that sack. And Father, we do that this morning, Lord. Father, we think of those this morning that are still at that place of the Old Testament covenant, continually bringing back sacrifices, hoping you'll be appeased. Lord, would you set them free from that with the grace of God pour forth over their lives, Lord. Would you flood into their hearts and from the inside out, Lord, would you let them just give it over and receive, Lord, your grace. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can be encouraged by your word this morning. Lord, we love you. You've stirred our hearts by your spirit. Thank you for that word, Lord. Continue it on beyond a feeling to an acknowledgement in our minds and in our deepest places of our hearts, the truth of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.